tracking the amazing growth of the first century church to challenge and inspire the 21st century church. This is Unstoppable Church, Then and Now, recorded on location in Israel, Cyprus, Turkey, Greece, Malta and Italy. Bible teacher and church pastor Mike Beaumont is in conversation for the next 30 minutes with David Taverner. The story of the growing church continues and of course with growth sometimes comes problems. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we're going to hit one of those in the passage that we come to today, a a self-made problem in this particular case, Um, but a story that's still got some really important principles for us to live by today if we want to continue to be unstoppable church in our generation. What's the sort of backstory then? Well, the backstory is, you know, the exciting, heady days of those days and weeks following the outpouring of the Holy Spirit when the Christians were filled and baptized with his presence and fullness and power, how they went out and uh, two things happened as a result. One is they started reaching outwards because the Holy Spirit had been given to empower them to reach out, but also how the Holy Spirit transformed them in how they built a new community together around Jesus, a community that we've seen right back in Acts chapter 2 of incredible devotion, dedication to one another and huge generosity so that those who were poor were helped out by those who were rich and those who had a field to spare would sell it and so on. So it's this background of things going incredibly well and a fantastic community built among these new Christians, uh, an insight into which we get at the end of chapter four. So we'll just read that really as the Mm. backstory to what we're going to look at today. So in Acts 4, 32, we read that all the believers were one in heart and mind and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace was on them all. Interesting, isn't it, that the way they lived together and the generosity of spirit seemed to release something of God's power. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field that he owned and he brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So here's the setting for the story we're gonna look at today. Incredible generosity. This is not communism, as we've said in a previous episode. This is the Holy Spirit so touching people's heart that they refuse to leave people in need while they had more than that they needed. So a a tremendously generous sharing spirit in the early church here. So you had to be all in. Everybody had to be in this together. Yeah, absolutely, which is why the story that we're going to look at in in Acts chapter 5 stands out so starkly because it's a story of a couple who wanted to 
make it look like they were all in, but actually who were living a very different life underneath the surface. Well, read on. Okay, so we're going to read the story from Acts chapter 5, which follows straight on from that passage that I've just read. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. But with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. Now when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. Now about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. And Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard these events. That seemed like a very heavy price to pay for, you know, just telling a fib. Yeah, but it was a bit more than telling a fib. You see, th there was something quite deep going on here that revealed there was a part of their character that still hadn't been yielded to the lordship of Jesus. And I think this is one of those occasions when God had to nip things in the bud because if this had been allowed to continue and if news had got out that, hey, it's okay to live a life of pretense in the church, because that's what this was about. It was about pretense, it was about hypocrisy, it was about a total lack of integrity uh, in a context where the church voluntarily is being incredibly generous and this couple wanted to make it look like they were just as generous as everyone else but really wanted to keep a part of it back. And the interesting thing is what stands out here is it's clear that there was no compulsion involved. As we've said previously, you know, this is no early form of communism. Uh, no compulsion, no expectation at all. This is the glad and joyful overflow of hearts that are full of Jesus. And, and Peter says, doesn't he, you know, you know when, when you had the field, it was yours. When you sold the field, the money was yours. The issue is not that you kept some money back. The issue is that you wanted us to think you'd given 100% of the sale when in fact you'd only given whatever it was, 80% of the sale, we're not told, but they kept some back 
for themselves. Now, if they'd gone to Peter and the apostles and said, hey, we've just sold this field for so much and we would like to give you X percent of that, they'd have said, praise God, what generosity. So it, it's not the fact that they hadn't given enough. It's the fact that they were trying to make themselves out to be better than they were. And, you know, he was a whole act of, frankly, betrayal. That sounds a strong word, but they were betraying the very church that Jesus had given his life for by trying to pretend to be something that they weren't. And you know what? If there's one thing that God hates, as we see again and again throughout the Bible, is people trying to pretend to be something that they are not. But couldn't they have just been sort of disciplined, you know, having a ticking off, should we say? Yeah, and it's interesting that, I mean, this is the only time this happens, uh, not only in Acts, but I think in the Bible, anything quite like this. Um, but it is this, it's this issue of having to nip it in the butt quickly. If this had been allowed to continue, this would have become the norm. I mean, we all know that in life, don't we? You know, things creep in, thin end of the wedge. Before we know it, the wedge has got a bit bigger and a bit bigger and a bit bigger. So this is... I think this is God showing that church is not a, a place to play around in and, and to mess about in, and certainly not to be hypocritical in. And that's why this unique uh, but very strong message comes home that we really do have to be principled in our life in Christ. And that's the title we've given to this episode, isn't it? The importance of being principled people, living by the principles of Jesus and, and seeking to live those out. And again, this theme of not pretending to be something that you aren't. So sort of having stuff, you know, we all have stuff. It's sometimes a bit of a security blanket, perhaps. <laughs> that, that's kind of okay. Yeah. Uh, and nowhere are we told in the Bible, we have to sell our stuff and, and give it away. This is about what's in your heart. What's in your heart? You know, James will say in, in his letter, you know, uh, how can you say to a poor man who comes into your midst, you know, God bless you, be well fed, you know, the Lord be with you, and, and yet leave him there, you know, hungry and unclothed. Come on, you just can't do that, can you? Not if you're really a follower of Jesus. So there's not compulsion here, but if, if Jesus has done something in your life, then um, surely it should change every aspect of your life. Yeah, your money and how you handle your finances, what you do with your stuff. Stuff is not bad. We, you know, we can look in the Bible and discover there are people who had stuff. And not just in the Old Testament, not just people like Abraham, or Isaac and Jacob, who had growing numbers of flocks and who were very wealthy. Uh, but in the New Testament, we come across people who had stuff, who had money, um, who were never told to give it away. Some of the women who supported Jesus used their stuff, their money to support him. In the book of Acts, uh, we come across Lydia, who was a, a wealthy businesswoman, dealt in purple cloth, which in those days was sort of high-end fashion. And uh, she owned up her home to use it as a base for the church in Philippi. And not once is there any suggestion that, you know, you really ought to be selling this place. And, you know, if you sold this place, we could buy a dozen homes for other people. No, there's never any sense of that, never any sense of compulsion. It's not wrong to have stuff. Um, the issue is, do we have the stuff or does the stuff have us? And I think in our 21st century world, it is very easy for the stuff to have us, for us 
to be in the hold of money rather than, you know, money to be in our hold. So this is a really um, relevant story. I mean, it's a very shocking story, let's face it, you know, for the guy to fall down dead. And then the same to happen to his wife. Though note that she was given an opportunity to tell the real story. He says, you know, was this really the amount you got for it? Oh, yes, 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 that was the full amount. And she drops down dead too. So this is not Peter doing this. This is not the church doing this. This is, and this is scary, this is God doing this. This is God saying, I can't and I won't have this stuff in my church, this stuff going on, because if we don't nip this in the bud now, then it is simply going to spread. It sounds like the dangers of being two-faced, and I'm wondering whether that might be why we're here. And we're on location in Jerusalem. Why are we here at this uh, Greek Orthodox monastery? Yeah, well, we chose to come to... Uh, we're actually in the uh, Valley of Hinnom at the moment, outside the, the city walls, and we're at uh, Akeldama. The monastery where we are is the monastery of, of St. Onofrius that was... Uh, built here by this field of Akeldama. And uh, perhaps listeners will remember that that links into the story of Judas that's referred to uh, back in Acts chapter 1, where there's a reference to the need to replace Judas with someone because he betrayed Jesus. For people who don't know the story, Judas was one of the original 12 disciples who decided to betray Jesus to the religious authorities. Now, there have been all sorts of reasons and suggestions for, you know, why he did it. Was he trying to force Jesus's hand? Was he trying to make him become the sort of military messiah rather than the sort of messiah he looked like being? Um, The simple answer is the only psychological explanation that the New Testament ever gives is that he'd never dealt with the problem of money. Money seemed to be a bit of a God to him and he ended up selling out Jesus for money I find it incredible that Jesus made Judas the treasurer of the little group he looked after the money bag and I'm sure Jesus knew what he was like and I think when Jesus put him into that position of treasurer it was Jesus giving him an opportunity to change you know to bring that area of weakness to him and he never did he ended up betraying Jesus and then of course once he'd betrayed Jesus the full realization of what happened dawned upon him and he hung himself committed suicide having thrown the 30 pieces of silver that he'd been given back at the feet of the religious leaders and then they get all hoity-toity and say oh you know we can't possibly uh, have this money it's blood money so they decided to buy a field here right where we are the field of Akel Dharma, uh, that was used as a place uh, from that time right through actually to the beginning of the 19th century, where we are now, was used as a, a graveyard for burying non-Jews. Uh, and then at the end of the 19th century, in 1892, the Greek Orthodox Church built this monastery here. Uh, St. Onofrius was one of the desert fathers, a, a fourth century hermit with very long hair who dressed in a loincloth only of leaves and and lived in the desert of Upper Egypt. So I hope we're not going to meet him today looking like that. Um, so that's why we're here, because this spot where we are is, it's a, it's a place that remembers betrayal, uh, treachery, uh, 
lack of integrity. And so we thought that this would be perhaps an appropriate place to come to, to think about this story in, in Acts where there was that, yet frankly, betrayal of Jesus and everything he stood for, a betrayal of the church, a lack of in, integrity. And, you know, just sort of putting Ananias and Sapphira together and then alongside Judas, I mean, did they all have choices when it came to whether to be two-faced or not? <laughs> yeah, we always have choices, don't we? Uh, and sometimes we might blame circumstances for our choices, but at the end of the day, we still all have choices. And both Judas and Ananias and Sapphira had choices. In, in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, they absolutely had the choice to say, do you know what, we, we've got this field, we are just not using it. Let's sell it and give some of the proceeds to the church. Let's lay that at the apostles' feet. And the apostles would have said, praise God, thank you for your generosity. But the choice they made was to give part and pretend it was all. So they made a deliberate choice to be deceptive, to be two-faced, as you put it earlier, to, to try to pretend to be something that they weren't. Now, that was what really God wasn't very happy with. And as this new community were growing, it wasn't therefore just the external pressures that they were having problems with, but these internal ones. Yeah, and I think the church has recognised that ever since to this present day, hasn't it? that uh, the pressures that come, yes, can be external. And we've seen those so far in our tracing of the story of Acts, haven't we? External pressure from the Jewish authorities in particular. But now here is an internal pressure that could have ruined the church, ripped it apart, that could have led to it becoming a sort of two-faced institution. Now, I would have to say there have been times in history, sadly, when the church has been exactly that and when the church has become so obsessed with itself and money that it has failed to be what it's called to be. But, you know, what a sad story this is that God had to act in such a powerful way. But the amazing thing is it, it had its desired effect because the story ended with that sentence, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. So it, it made an impact internally on the church members to realize that they had to live in their corporate life together as people of integrity, or it's gonna be impossible to build this new community that Jesus is looking for. But it's interesting, it also had an impact on all who heard about it. So, you know, Jerusalem was a pretty small city comparatively, and news would have traveled fast. Uh, and you can imagine the stories going around. Have you heard what's happened in that new bunch of the Jesus followers? Well, a couple of them were just struck down dead for cheating God. So th this is God nipping it in the bud. And the result was great fear. Now, we don't talk about fear very much uh, in the church today, do we? And even when we do, uh, very often we want to sort of describe it somewhat differently. So you know, the standard explanation, what does the fear of the Lord mean? Well, it means a healthy respect for God, which is true, but it's a bit more than that. And I think this is a reminder that God is our father and our friend, but he's not a sort of body to be messed about with. 
At the end of the day, he is our father and our friend, but he is God. He is the Almighty. He is holy. And he does have standards that he calls us to, and particularly as Jesus followers, it's important that we seek to live up to that. Now, do you know what? I'm absolutely convinced from what we know of the rest of Acts and the rest of the Bible that if Ananias and Sapphira at that moment had said, do you know what? It wasn't the whole money. I'm really sorry. We want it to look good. And we said it was all, but it wasn't. There would have been forgiveness. I'm convinced of it. Why? Because that's the principle of the whole of the Bible. You know, John will say in his letter, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I'm sure this could have been forgiven. And I'm sure, although we, you know, we only get the summary of the story, there would have been an opportunity to do that. But no, they're determined to see this through. And there's just no backing off from the storyline that they're taking together. I mean, Peter even says, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money? You know, even at that point, he could have said, dear God, you're right, I repent. But no, they're determined to keep up this facade. And so God acts in judgment and the fear of God the recognition that God is holy and righteous and that he does ultimately bring his judgment. You know, that is a clear theme of both Old and New Testaments. The point comes when God eventually says enough and his judgment comes. It's one thing, I suppose, for God to want his people to be principled, but sometimes does that turn into being dogmatic? It could do if all these things were written down as laws. You see, there was no rule in the early church that if you are going to be part of this community, you must give away excess property. You, you must dig deep. The rule was, <laughs> the rule, it's not even a rule. The principle was that if you're going to be part of this community, look, we're a community who want to live in openness towards God and towards one another. We want to live in generosity towards God and towards one another. Things that are still true today, but there's no rule about you must sell this, you must do that. This is more about the heart and spirit of the sort of people that Jesus wants us to be. And I think that's so important, you know, not just then, but, but now as well, because, I mean, what's one of the biggest challenges that non-Christians have made about churches over the years. I'll tell you, I'll sum it up, you know, in a couple of words, you know, a bunch of hypocrites. The number of times I've heard non-Christians say that, that the church is a bunch of hypocrites. And you know what? Sometimes we've got to iron up and say, that's absolutely been true. Sometimes, of course, it's just a convenient excuse that they know somebody who knew somebody who wrote something and there was a story about something or other. But being a bunch of hypocrites is the very last thing that we should be. Can the church today lose its principled stance? Oh, I, I, I'm sure it can, you know, because it has done throughout history. And, uh, you know, I think one of the biggest areas that the church needs to be alert to in these days is that 
the culture out there in the world in the West at the moment is, is probably changing more rapidly than it has at any point in history. And there are values and practices out there in the world today that are increasingly seen as okay and the norm. And the pressure on us as Christians and as churches is to agree with them and to say, yeah, that's okay. And even to sort of find Bible verses that could back it up and to overturn traditional Christian teaching in terms of how we live, whether that's to do with our integrity or our morality or our sexuality or a whole host of, of other things. So there is huge pressure on us to, you know, come on, be reasonable, be reasonable. And what about this one? I'm sure we've heard, you know, we're living in the 21st century now. Well, yeah, we are living in the 21st century with an eternal God who's existed from the beginning and will be there at the end. And it's his values and his principles that we're called to live by and to follow, not those of our culture around. And yet it could be very easy for us to get swept along with the latest trend and current value of the day. Ananias and Sapphira clearly got it badly wrong, but... I noticed that you mentioned somebody in the backstory, uh, Joseph from Cyprus. Is, is that a name that we'll hear of more? Because it sounds like he got it right. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, what a contrast in the story here. Um, here is a man of real integrity. Here is a man who is principled. And, of course, we want to focus on being principled, not, not being principled. Uh, so at the end of chapter 4, it's interesting that Luke gives us this little example, having said how generous-spirited the, the church was among themselves. Uh, he then just gives us one example, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Wow. I mean, what a nickname to have been given, because that's what it was, a nickname. What a nickname to have been given. Mr. Encourager. Oh, I would love to be given that nickname, that whatever you did and whatever you said encouraged people. And, you know, he seemed to have been a, a fairly wealthy guy and he, he sells this field that he owns and brings the money and puts it at the apostles' feet. Now, there's an example of principled living. You know, he sells the field, he gives all the money and he hands it over and because he's a generous-spirited man. And, yes, we are going to meet this guy, Barnabas, again and again. Um, he's going to appear as a key figure who will go and get Paul, or Saul as he was called at that time, when he was converted and, you know, the new Christians were a bit worried about, is this real? And it was Barnabas, Mr. Encourager, who went and found him out and, and introduced him to some of the Christians. It's Barnabas whom Saul, now called Paul, will take with him on some of his missionary trips. It's Barnabas who will give Mark a second chance when he's blown it on one of the missionary journeys with Paul. So what a guy of uh, incredible principles and what a contrast. And it, of course, it's not an accident that Luke tells the story of Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. Trouble is, in our Bibles, we've got chapters and verses, you know, and this big number five, you know, almost takes us on to another story. There were no chapters and verses, of course, in the original Bible text. So it would have stood out even more because you wouldn't have ended your daily reading at chapter four and started tomorrow at chapter five. You would have heard or read the whole story. So Luke deliberately puts these two stories together 
as he's thinking about what does it mean to live as a principled Christian? Gives us a broad example, then the specific example of Barnabas, and then, wow, how that contrasts even more with this lack of principles, lack of integrity in the life of Ananias and Sapphira. And so a life of integrity leads to certain things. There are certain you know, benefits, certain outcomes. I mean, where else you know, in, the, in the Bible do we find references to, to that? Well, if, if people wanted to pursue this a bit more, I'd, I'd encourage them to look in the Psalms and the Proverbs in particular, because there's an awful lot there about living a principled life, living a life of integrity, and the blessing that it leads to. Now, th- this, this is broad observation. You know, I cannot guarantee that if you live a principled life, Nothing will ever go wrong for you uh, because we live in a fallen world. Uh, But I mean, for example, whoever walks in integrity walks securely. But whoever takes crooked paths will be found out. Proverbs 10, 9. Well, we've just seen an example of that lack of integrity of the taking crooked paths being found out. Or Proverbs 11, 3, the integrity of the upright guides them but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Oh, my goodness, that's powerful. Mm. Your own duplicity ends up destroying you. And that, of course, is exactly what happened in this story of Ananias and Sapphira. So to end on a positive note and to keep our focus on the importance of being principled, the importance within the life of the church today. If we're going to be unstoppable church in the 21st century, we are going to have to resolve as individuals and as communities that we are going to live principled lives. We're going to base those principles on God's word, not on our culture around us. We're going to look at God's word, yes, interpret it well, and then seek to apply it to life. And it's in seeking to live principled lives based on God's word that God's hand is then released just as it was in these early chapters of Acts. So, hey, yeah, why not check our own hearts and let's make sure we're living principled lives. We're not being two-faced like Ananias and Sapphira's tried to be because when we do live with integrity, well, as Proverbs said, whoever walks in integrity will walk securely. Mike Beaumont and David Taverner, traveling from Jerusalem to Rome and beyond to track the amazing growth of the first century church and what that means for the unstoppable church of the 21st century. There are more Bible podcasts from Mike and David on the UCB Player app and major podcast platforms. Check out Jesus Then and Now or Bible Books in 30 Minutes.